Well, thank you, worship team, for uh, helping us to praise the name of Jesus this morning. And uh, so it's great to be with you. I'm Pastor Brent Oakwin. Normally on Sunday morning, I'm over at Faith East, and it's always good to be over here at Faith West. Also, I want to praise the Lord for you, Faith Church. Um, I know many of you have been serving um, quite a bit between the Living Nativity last weekend, Christmas for Everyone last weekend, and uh, this weekend, Living Nativity. And, and uh, so thank you for just being such servants. I know right now, you may need a nap more than you need a sermon, so, uh, so I understand that. No judgment zone right here if you take one. I just ask two things, okay? Number one, keep the snoring down and the volume of the CPAP machines down a little bit as well. So, uh, and, um, you know, the worship team ended just about five minutes early, so you may get five extra minutes of nap right now. That's the only time you want to pray for the pastor to go long so you can get a, a more of a nap. All right, well, let's get to the business at hand here. I grew up with a very stable family life, and the moment I say that, I recognize that some of you may not be able to relate to that because you grew up with something, anything other than normal family life. I've often spoke of my dad, who was a pharmacist owning his own drugstore. That's the way he just functioned, and uh, that, that was a stable existence for me. I, I worked in his drugstore as a teen and as a youth. My mother worked as his bookkeeper. Every morning she would go in to do the books for my dad, and then she would be home by the time I got home from public school. That's stable. My parents took me regularly to church where I heard the gospel. So that was stable. I only knew of one childhood house, and here it is. That pick taken from Zillow was um, my childhood middle-class, three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,400-square-foot home. That was the home that I knew all of my life. After I moved away from Oklahoma to Indiana, this state, home for the holidays meant traveling back to that house. In that house, which my father purchased, I think he purchased around 1970. I was two years old at that moment in time. But in that house, when I would come home from the holidays from Indiana, uh, my father would be waiting for me to welcome me when my car rolled in from the 15-hour drive from Indiana. There in that house, my mother would have cooked either the Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, whichever holiday I came home for. In that house, I always knew where to look for the Christmas tree and the presents right there in the, that front bay window there. You know, as I've shared with you before, my father died in 2014, and then my mother died suddenly in 2019. After handling the details of my mother's funeral, you know, many of you know what the next step is. What do you do with the house? Okay dealing with that house. Packing up 50 years worth of memories was overwhelming. Preparing for the sale of the house was even more overwhelming, inducing such an ache in my soul that I had not experienced before. For the very first time in my life, I felt like a 50-year-old orphan with no anchor in this world. You know, what was it that seemingly tied me to this earth? What was my existence all about? It was about really that home, that all I knew. Waves of tears came and went on the 15-hour journey away from that house as I drove a U-Haul back to Lafayette, Indiana, from dealing with my mom's and my dad's estate. Even today at Christmas time or holidays, 
Um, I realize there's nothing ever to draw me back to Lawton, Oklahoma, right there to that house. There's still a hollowness in my soul because of that. So whether it's the ache of a 50-year-old orphan or a newly orphaned child of the Israel-Gaza war or the pain of your pain of instability of no house, no home in a childhood setting or even right now, our longing for something stable, for an anchor in this world, that pain is reflective of us all being spiritual orphans exiled from a stable home that God intended us to have with him. So with that in mind, please turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. That's on page 492 in the front section of the Bible in the chair in front of you. We are continuing our series on uh, Christmas series, Light of the World. And let me set up a bit of context here for you that's going to help us understand the topic of the hand at hand today. And I'm going to get into a little bit of history. And don't let your eyes glaze over right now, okay? Um, the, this history will be important, I promise you. And I know many of you say, I don't want to know history. Just tell me what is relevant for my life today. I'm going to show you that this is relevant. So don't let your eyes quite glaze over just yet, okay? Unless you're doing that nap thing I told you about, okay? So... God had established his people in a particular piece of real estate. Let's call it the promised land. Let's call it a home for his people or a house for the stability of his people at this moment in time in the context of Isaiah. There God would dwell with his people in the home of the promised land. He, along with his people, were to be a stabilizing um, influence in the world, a light for the world in the world of darkness. God even promised that one individual's house, the house of David, would stand forever and the world would find refuge through that house. After 700 years, God's people regularly turned to other houses or homes and not God's. They delighted in other so-called gods that could not provide any stability. Eventually, God had to discipline and purify his own house, his own home. And that's a short version of what Isaiah is about, God bringing judgment or discipline upon his own house. But, everyone say but, okay? At the same time, promising hope for a lasting home, with a lasting leader or father in that home. Now, God's disciplining judgment would come in the form of an invading nation, essentially destroying God's house on earth. And so when you think about the Old Testament, and I know many of you love to just park in the New Testament, and the Old Testament makes no sense to you, but let me give you, let me give you just four major crises point with God's people in the Old Testament. You can hang your hat on this so that you can begin to orient your understanding of the Old Testament around these four events. The first one is this, God's people leaving their original home, Eden. Okay, God's people leaving their original house or home in Eden. That's number one. Number two, God's people in captivity in Egypt. Okay, this is the Exodus events. And then they're preparing to go out of Egypt into a new home, the promised land. That's number two. Okay. And then okay, number three, God's people beginning to have to leave that home one more time. 
and return to captivity. That's called the Assyrian crisis. I know this word rolls right off your tongues, but say, if you will, please, Assyrian crisis. Assyrian crisis. Okay, so that's what Isaiah is primarily about, God judging his home and the people Um, the next step on their itinerary is leaving their home because God is judging it. But at the same time, number four, God's people fully removed from the house in captivity. That's called the Babylonian captivity as well. So Isaiah is about number three and prophesying about number four, a full exile from their home. So in Isaiah number three, here's actually what's going on real quick. God had raised up the nation of Assyria coming in from the northeast to discipline his people. Aram, you can see there on the map, and Israel, you can see there on the map, and Judah all know the handwriting on the wall. The big man on campus is coming. His name um, is the king of Assyria. Okay? So recognizing that the big man on campus is coming, the king of Aram and the king of Israel are going to resist. They form an alliance together and demand that the Davidic king Ahaz, you can see Judah, the Judah, Judah kingdom, the southern kingdom of Israel, and King Ahaz, he's a Davidic king. God had promised that the Davidic king would stand and the house would stand. But king of Aram and the king of Israel coalesce together and they say to King Ahaz basically this, if you do not join us in our fight against Assyria, we're going to destroy you, King Ahaz, and we're going to destroy the Davidic house and we're going to replace your house with somebody else. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, exhorts King Ahaz, will you trust me? Will you trust me? You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 7. But because God had promised an everlasting Davidic house that would stand, Isaiah is appealing to King Ahaz, do not fear, don't fear these guys. But King Ahaz did not believe. And instead, would you believe this? He turns to the king of Assyria for refuge instead of God. Eventually, ruthless Assyria comes and wipes out Aram in the north, Israel, the northern kingdom, and most of Judah as well. Here is a spiritual lesson in that. Those things that we trust in other than God will ultimately destroy us. And in the midst of that bleak and dark and house-destroying event in Isaiah, God offers this promise in Isaiah chapter 9. This is God's word, Isaiah 9 chapter verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You may say, Brent, I don't get all that. Here's a very quick summary. Uh, This is where your geography is going to come in. Assyria came in from the north and destroyed through the north. One day... Um, Isaiah predicts that light will shine from the north. If you read your Gospels, Jesus Christ comes in and he ministers first in the north, in the Sea of Galilee area. So verse 2, the people who walk in darkness there in the north, they're going to see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. 
and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and that's the name we're going to deal with today, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So in the midst of the devastating house-destroying situation, where it would seem that God's promise of the Davidic house would be destroyed, God says, think again, because there's coming a child, and his throne will be forever. So this morning we're talking about this, hope for a secure house because of the child called Eternal Father. I know that's a lengthy title. You can blame that uh, lengthy title on me. I did that. The name Eternal Father here implies four hope-filled actions. So we need to kind of wrestle with what's going on with this name, Eternal Father. But it implies four hope-filled actions of one who would provide an everlasting and secure house for his people. Now I know that the moment we get into this text this morning, we already have tension and controversy. If you have some exposure to Christianity, you know that the Bible teaches that there is one God and three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We know that as the Trinity. And this prophecy about a coming Son called the Eternal Father may utterly confuse you, rightly so. But I'm going to propose that scriptures here are not mistaking the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, with the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. I hope to show you, based upon the context of this prophecy, what the title most likely indicated. So we're going to see that today. Now, let's start with this. What is, imagine maybe you had a good father. Maybe you didn't. But if you longed for a good father and you didn't have one, what does a good father do? Number one, here's what he does. He builds a house for his people, for his family. In September, several of us at Faith returned from Israel two weeks before the current war started. What timing was that? You know, around Israel, we would see villages and houses like the following right there. You, can, can you see the layered residential units there? You can see that certainly some of those are apartments with different family units dwelling in them, but some of them are just family units with different layers. And often we would see rebarb and beams still sticking out of the roofs as if the residential unit was incomplete. And our group asked the tour guide, why was that the case? Well, the explanation that we were given is that something along the lines of this, you know, like a, a father would establish a house. And in his house, he would have a son, he would have children, and the son would grow up, and the son would start a family as well. The son, soon to be husband and father, would prepare a place for his bride and his family on top of the father's house. Therefore, the, the rebarbs and the beams still sticking up. The son would come in preparing a place for his family and build on top or even next to the father's house. 
So the incomplete dwelling place would be for the son to build upon, to start his own family. If you're seeing the imagery here, this may be what Jesus is referring to, and it goes way back beyond, you know, 2023 here. I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house are many dwelling places. So that's kind of the imagery. So a man, soon to be husband, father, prepares to build a house. Now the name given here to this child is eternal father. How do we begin to understand eternal father of, I mean, he's called a child, a son. I want you to do something here. I want you to consider the Isaiah context of father, son, houses, and dynasty. You know, when I got this passage, um, I did not pick this passage. (laughs) And when I got it and I saw that I was going to preach on eternal father, I thought, what am I going to say about this? This is going to confuse everybody. What am I going to say? I wanted to give this passage to, like, Pastor Aaron Burke. That's who I wanted to give this passage to so that he could deal with the tension. But here's what I had to remember in my training. Brent, look at the context, look at the context, look at the context. If you will, please say, look at the context. All right, and we're going to look at the context. Eternal Father is somehow related to the context in which the name is found. So let me draw your attention here to previous chapters. We're in chapter 9. Things were going on in chapter 7 and 8. I'm not going to give you a cohesive narrative here, but I want you to see the phrases in chapter 7 and 8. Notice how much it talks about sons of, houses of, your father's house, that kind of thing. Now it comes about, now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of, everyone if you will please say, the son of, the son of, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel. Okay? When it was reported to the house, everyone, if you will, please say house, house of David. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramalia. We keep going. Let us go against Judah. Set up the son of Tabiel um, as king replacing the house of David right there in the midst of it. And then he said, listen now, house of David, um, the Lord will bring on your father's house. But to both the houses of Israel, behold, I, Isaiah, and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts who dwells in a house, it's called the house of David there on Mount Zion. Context is all about houses, fathers, sons. So this name, Eternal Father, is in the context of houses and dynasties. Last time I'm going to show you this map today, okay? So the ruling houses of Aram and Israel, northern kingdom, were threatening to wipe out the house of David, the kingdom of Judah, which actually was God's house that he was dwelling in with his people. And when that was reported to King Ahaz, the house of David, the scripture says in Isaiah 7-2, the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Fear and instability because their anchor in the promised land, what seemed to be a promised stable house, was going to be wiped out You know, here in the United States, we don't have anything close to a permanent ruling dynasty. 
And I don't know your political views, don't want to know, but sometimes a monarchy or a permanent ruling dynasty provides stability. Okay? You know, we have elected presidents and not successive dynasty, but we still have a sense of economic and political insecurity each time a president with different values than our own or politics than our own, when that president is elected and it changes, you still sense that tension there of what's going to be stable in our economic, in our, in our country. The name Eternal Father promises hope that there would be some measure of permanent stability in this world with a king, a father, a lasting house that would survive. You say, Brent, I'm not so sure about your interpretation of this. Well, let's consider something else. Number two, let's consider what God had promised to David. Okay? So way back in Second Samuel chapter 7, Listen to what God had promised to David. It came about when the king, David, lived in, lived in what? Say the word. Lived in what? His house. That the king, David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells within the tent curtains. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place. Sounds like a what? Sounds like a what? A house. And the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And when your days, David, when you die, when they are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come, one who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. See the father-son language there. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, here's my primary point. You say, Brent, get to the points, regardless of all the history. Even if you don't understand all the history, here's what it was. God promised to use King David to build an everlasting house or home. To, for a secure place for his people. And I'm going to say to you that that was God's plan from the very beginning of creation as well. From the very, very beginning of creation, God wanted to dwell with his people in a house or a home. And from that stable, established anchor, God would have his people rule over the earth and fill the earth with his glory as they were fruitful and multiplied. However, the first father who was to build that home, Adam, that house for his children, Adam sent and was cast out of the house, okay? the house of Eden, the anchor points. And from that point on, all of us, we are people, we are a people who innately have a sense of being homeless in this world that's supposed to be our home. Like an extreme amped up feeling on steroids that I had when I left my childhood home for that last time with no parents alive anymore, feeling like an orphan. No anchor, no grounding, no stability. That's the ache inside all of us that we innately know apart from God. God comes to David and says, I'm going to build your house forever. 
and it will be a refuge for all of the nations. God's desire is to have a people who live in a secure house. Let me ask you a question here, maybe fairly obvious. Okay. It, who's the father of this house? Is it God or is it David? Is it God or is it David? Okay, let's be more, let's, is everybody else as sure as Tony and Gail? <laughs> if you are, use your lips. <laughs> who built, who is building the house? Is it David or is it God? Okay. Hang on to that because that's going to be important in just a moment. It's going to get really interesting. So the title Eternal Father implies one who will be a progenitor of a house. He will build the house for his people. One who builds a house. But also, secondly, the title Eternal Father does this. He unites with the house of his people. Let me ask another obvious question. When a human father has offspring, what kind of child is it? Do they still teach biology at Purdue? I don't know if they do anymore, apparently. Um, if a human father has offspring, what kind of child is it? Is it a giraffe? A human father has what kind of a child? Human. So the father passes on his substance, and the child is human. Oh, folks, please don't miss the clear tension in this passage. I know for those of you who have been around Christianity for a long time, I know you've heard this passage. A child will be born almost every year at Christmas, and many times we miss the inherent and intentional tension in this passage. The passage on its surface is impossible. It has a seemingly unresolvable tension or contradiction actually in it, and it's meant to elicit this response. How can this be? Did you catch the tension? Let me give it to you again if you, if you missed it. What is the tension in this text? A child will be born to us. A son will be given in his name as eternal father. What is the tension? <laughs> what is the tension? Do you see it? This text is seemingly impossible. A child or a son will be born, but his name is eternal father. How can one who is born as a son be an eternal father of those like him? How can this be? And furthermore, let remind you again of a point I, uh, that I said in point number one. Who is building this house again? Who is building this house? God. It's God, not David. God is building the house. Another question. Is God human? <laughs> okay. Well, that kind of stretching my mind right now a little bit as well because Jesus is... Uh, this passage says that the one who establishes the eternal secure home is this, a child, a human child. But I told you earlier, God is building the house. A child that is given, a son that is to be born. How is it that God is building this house, but at the same time a human child is establishing this house? How is that possible? Don't overlook this. Furthermore, this is the same child, if you're reading in the context of Isaiah, this is the same child you know of by a different name, Emmanuel, chapter 7, God with us. 
Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. This child, God with us, this is the same tension. A human son that is called God with us. Oh, friends, in its original context, this was meant to be perplexing. And that mystery remained for 700 years. And we see, if you're struggling with this this morning, you should be. And the people of Israel, 700 years later, after this was given, they were struggling with it too. Remember this little episode in Matthew chapter 22. When the Pharisees were gathered together, this man named Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Notice the question, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Well, yeah, right. He said to them, then how does David say in the spirit, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? (laughs) And like many, and like us, if you're struggling, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone ask him another question that day. God is building the house for his people, but the house must be built from a human child. Oh, Faith Church West. What is the miraculous solution to this impossibility? What is the miraculous solution to this? Here it is, point number two. God has to unite to the house of humans. This is the only way that a stable human house would be enduring and secure. A true father is of the same substance of the children. You know that from biology. God had to unite with humanity. And right there you have the story of Christmas. Oh, Faith Church Church West family, don't miss the wonder of Christmas. God would not simply stand at a distance, but he would have to unite to humanity. Emmanuel, God with us, a child to be born that is the eternal father, the progenitor of the house, who united with the house and became of the same substance as his children. There is no other story like this among the religions of the world. And this text is setting up the Christmas story like none other. And you may be saying, Brent, okay, in your skepticism or some of us in our skepticism say, how can this be? (laughs) And you're right to say that. How could God ever become man? You know, that's still one of the struggles of the Jewish population today, why they don't consider Jesus as the Messiah. They don't consider, because God cannot. He's too great to become man. How could he do that? And I think the extent of the miracle will always be elusive to us. But C.S. Lewis, when 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 I try to understand things, and I'm not always a deep thinker, I go to people who are deep thinkers, C.S. Lewis captured in it this way. He said this. We catch a sight of a new key principle, the power of a higher, just insofar as it is truly higher to come down. The power of the greater to include the less. Everywhere the great enters the little 
Its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. You say, Brent, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> okay. Let me make it very simple in terms of what we can all understand. Three months ago, I had the privilege of becoming a grandpa for the very first time. Oh, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. You know, and our little granddaughter, Ariel, Ari is just starting to coo. I think it's cooing. It could be gas. I don't know. <laughs> but the moment our little grandbabies or even our infants start to utter coos or whatever, what instinctively do the adults do back? We start talking how? Like baby talk. That's what we do. So, but that baby will never ever start citing Shakespeare in that moment. Okay? Also this. A PhD physicist can teach a junior high algebra class, but a junior high school student can never teach a doctrinal class in physics. So the power of the higher, as far as it is truly higher, shows its greatness by coming down and uniting with the lessers. Everywhere the great enters the little, that is the sign of greatness. And you'll notice in all of the other world religions, their so-called gods do not have this capacity. They don't come down and love and unite with the lesser. Christianity is unique in that way. Allah in Islam doesn't do that. This is a sign of our God, the true God's greatness. Oh, friends, here is my appeal to you. I don't know what house you're trusting in for your stability, for your security, but there is no hope in the houses of this earth built by us. Okay? Only if there's a God who is greater, who is building a house and has come down to unite with us is there hope of security and stability only in that. So, not only does a father build a house for his children, not only is a father of the same substance of, the, of his offspring, he unites with it. Thirdly, a father gives his life for his people. He becomes a life-giving source for his people. Another obvious fact, a father gives physical life to his offspring. Obviously, without a father and a mother, we have no children. Okay, so there is no life without a father and a mother. So a father gives physical life, and the term eternal father implies eternal spiritual life in this eternal father's home. Later in Isaiah, and, and I know sometimes when we go into the Old Testament, I, I understand this. It's hard and it's complicated. I understand it. And many times Isaiah, we think of Isaiah's unrelated oracles that don't have a theme running through it. But I'm here to tell you that that's not exactly true. There are themes running through all of the 66 chapters of Isaiah. The child that is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9 and 7 um, becomes a man in Isaiah 53. He becomes a servant. And in Isaiah 53, somehow he dies, but he still sees his offspring. Isaiah 53.10, he will see his offspring. Notice this fascinating passage that enter in the New Testament here in John chapter 1. As many as received him, whoever this him is, 
To them he gave the right to become children, if you will please say the word children, children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the physical lineage, but of God, the spiritual lineage. They had to be born again to be children. And here's another mind-twisting passage in Hebrews that intermingles a status of an individual as father and brother in solidarity with his people. Notice this mind-twisting passage. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I'm going to proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This individual has children. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also likewise partook of the same. He had to unite with them that through the death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. And this individual is going to give them life over death. He goes on, For surely he does not give help to the house of angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be make, made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and Here's the exaltation as a father, priestly figure, faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This unique individual spoken of here in Hebrews is both father and brother. Fascinating that I and the children that you have given me, not ashamed to call them brethren. Two weeks ago, church family nights. I know you've slept since then, but two weeks of church family night. Do you remember who was doing the baptisms if you came out to church family night? If you don't come out to church family night, I encourage you to do so. Who was, giving, who was doing the baptisms two weeks ago? Pastor Folden. Do you remember one particular unique individual that he was baptizing? Sawyer. And remember in our, in our you know, phrases, um, I baptize you, Sawyer, my, my what? My brother. Pastor Folden was the father of Sawyer, but now he's a brother of his son. Spiritual brother because they have the same spiritual father. Fascinating. So in this passage here, father in the sense of I and the children that God has given me, as if this individual is the author, the head of their faith, but at the same time, one with them, a brother. All of this is so wonderfully mysterious. So security comes not only from a father who builds a house for his children, not only from a father who unites with that house and becomes like them, not only from a father who is the author and source of their children's life, but finally a father whose fatherhood never ends rises to be the king forever of his people. 
There will be no end to the increase of his governments or of peace and on the throne of David. That's talking about the house of David that God promised and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Again, I don't know the kind of father you had. Some of you had great fathers. I was at Jeremy Vetker's father's funeral yesterday. And it was just such a blessing to hear the way that he testified about his earthly father. Some of you don't have that kind of father, but let's for the moment imagine the best father ever. He wins the Father of the Year Award every year. Imagine always being able to go to him. You know, that's still a hole in my heart when I think about some of the joys that God's given me, like being a grandparent for the first time. When that happened, I want to pick up the phone and call my mom or my dad and say, look at this beautiful baby, but they're not there anymore. Imagine always being able to go to a father, always being able to ask a question, having a home, what security, what stability, what assurance in this life of having that kind of a father and for that kind of eternal security If I want eternal security, I would need an eternal father, unlike our earthly fathers who die. A son will be given to us, a child will be born, and his name is called Eternal Father. Now, friends, let's ask this question. Who is this child of Isaiah 9? The Old Testament gives us the name of the promised child as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know him by a different name. I've intentionally withheld the name from you throughout this sermon until this point. Who is the God that became a son to build a stable house for his people? Who is that God? Say his name. Say his name. Jesus. Who is the God that united with humanity? Please say his name. Jesus. Who is the child that can give life to cause spiritually dead children to be born again? Please say his name. Jesus. Who is the one that rose again and lives to reign in his house forever? If you will, please say his name. Absolutely. Now I want to fast forward for just a moment. Okay, From Christmas to Easter. So you can see something remarkable. As I mentioned in the beginning of the context where um, you were just first dozing off at that moment and, um, and I told you about the history and here's where it comes into play. I mentioned in the beginning in the context this promise was given in the context of a house of David being judged, destroyed, and disciplined for failure to be faithful children in the house. And once again, even what seemed to be a promise of God to establish a stable house in the, for the household of David The household of David seemed to be being destroyed at that moment in time. And that stability seemed to be elusive. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. Uh, Okay, this is going to require you to think. If God himself comes in and unites with the house of David, the house that he promised to build, but that house has been defiled and needs to be judged, what does this mean? If he unites with that house, if God himself 
unites with a house that needs to be purified, that needs to be judged. What does this mean? <laughs> Here's what it means. He himself will take the discipline, the judgment, the destruction that that house deserved for the impurity of that house. So here's the beauty of Christmas and Easter. The builder of the house who was God unites with the house that needs to be judged and indeed he acts like a true father does. What does a true father do? He gives his life for his children. Eternal father. Oh, do you see how he loves you? So Faith Church West family, Merry Christmas and Happy Easter at the same time. A son will be given and his name will be called Eternal Father. That's the house you want to be part of this Christmas. You know, I don't know what your spiritual state is here. I'm sure there's some who are not a part of this house that God is building. Please note that there is no stable house on this earth or in eternity apart from the one that Jesus Christ is building. If you do not know Jesus Christ this Christmas, um, what house are you looking for then? There is no other stable house. We will help you with understanding this in more detail and we appeal to you to run to this house and be stable forever. Believers, let me ask you a question. Why are we so shaken when our houses that we're building on this earth, and I'm not talking about the house you live in, but the houses of relationships that we so clamor after, and they're sweet, and we're celebrating them at Christmas time and all holidays, but they're not our permanent house. Our houses of finances, our houses of possessions, our houses of whatever fame and popularity that we so crave for that will be what we think is stable and they're all crumbling and then we're shaking like the wind when we see their foundations are not stable. You have an eternal house that cannot be shaken and we want to invite as many people into this house and that's why we have all of these Christmas ministries, holiday season ministries. That's why we do all this as many people as possible to come into the, this house of God. You know, sentimentally, each Christmas, I think about my earthly father's house or home, the one that I showed you at the beginning. Ultimately, that home, and I had to remind myself of this often, that house, my father's house, was not my anchor. It's just not. Even though I long for it to be. My earthly father actually is my spiritual brother and we're part of another house. So it's not that house at 4230 Southeast Avondale Lane or not even my biological father, Harry Oakwin, that was my stability. Harry Oakwin and me share an eternal father, the author and head of our salvation, Jesus Christ. We are part of his house, the only permanent stable house ever. For the last sermon of this year, from my standpoint, this is my last sermon with you for this year. Let's end the way that we began with, you know, beginning of the year we started in 1 Peter. Let's end with 1 Peter and notice this theme as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to him as living stones, 
which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion. This is a reference to God's house, the Davidic promise, the Davidic house. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Faith Church family, if you will, please say, I will not be disappointed. Say that, I will not be disappointed. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name for the child, the son that was to be given, and his name is Eternal Father, who builds his family a house, who unites with it, infuses it with spiritual life, and will be a father forever because he lives forever. Oh, Father, Remind us and implant these precious truths into our spiritual DNA and help us to live faithfully the end of this year and into the next with these things precious to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.